Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark, and on today's episode it's a bit of a celebration. First off, we're at episode 20, the big 2-0. But not only that, it's a year since we launched the very first episode of Mark and Me. Back in September of 2016, I decided to launch a side project, a bit of a one-on-one interview podcast which was just meant to talk to people within pop culture. If someone had a good story to tell, I wanted to record it and release it for the people in the world. That's all I wanted to do. I launched it with Kevin Smith, who was one of my favourite film directors, and I followed it up with Corey Feldman. Now, over the last 12 months, I've spoken to the likes of Jason Mewes, Sir Anthony Hopkins, the list goes on. But on today's episode, I really want to celebrate. So my guest for today will be Neil Blomkamp. I have been a huge, huge fan of Neil ever since District 9 blew me away back in 2009. All of his films are totally original sci-fi concepts that he has come up with all on his own. I always thoroughly enjoy exploring the worlds that he creates and the ideas that he considers and what he plays with within his stories always blows my mind. Elysium and Chappie are such unique films and have some of the best incredible visual effects out there. This is something that Neil Blomkamp does so so well. Not only does he come up with these original concepts but he makes everything feel real. He integrates the visual effects seamlessly. But not only that, the practical effects he uses, the sets he builds and the performances he gets from his actors is just so, so strong. Any time a film comes with his name attached on, I will go and see it. I absolutely love the guy and I'm so, so lucky to have him join me today for episode 20. In the last few months, Neil Blomkamp has been blowing people away with his Oats Studios. These are incredible short films that are on YouTube. I remember seeing the first one, Raka, which is a dark vision of humanity, basically facing off against this powerful alien species, and I was stunned. It's something that I've not seen before. It's a short film that's only 20 minutes on YouTube, but the best thing was, he followed it up with another short story, and again, another short story, and they're all free, and they're all on YouTube now. So please, go and check them out. Hopefully you have and you're going to be looking forward to this episode to hear more and more about this studio project. Oat Studios is going to be huge, but I don't want to go into it too much now. I want to basically let Neil tell the story about it, so that's what I'm going to do. So here is the interview with myself and Neil Blomkamp. So at what age was it that you wanted to become a filmmaker? Was it at a very young age that you knew you wanted or did it come later in life? It was definitely at a very young age that I felt like I wanted to be involved in film in some capacity. You know, I grew up in South Africa, and uh, I think up until about the time that I moved to Canada, it never really occurred to me that I could actually do that as a job, <laughs> like that it could actually become reality. Yeah. Um, it was just something I was like hyper interested in, and wasn't necessarily going to, you know, manifest itself into, into becoming real. But um, when I moved to Canada, I was, uh, I was 18, and I got into um, Vancouver Film School to start doing uh, visual effects. And it was pretty much exactly at the point that I got here that I, that I realized that I could turn my lifelong obsession with film into, into what I did for a living. Or at least I could try to, whether I succeeded or not would, you know, was unknowable. 
so when I go back to living in South Africa, um, from the time I was really, really young, um, I was, I was obsessed with film and animation and, um, you know, just filmmaking in general. And I looked at, uh, I looked at a lot of different elements that I found really inspiring, um, from just, just concept design imagery from people like Chris Foss or Sid Mead over to the fabrication of some of those concepts, like what Stan Winston would, would have done. And, and then when I was about, I think I was about 11 or 12 when Terminator 2 came out and, um, that made me get really interested in computer graphics. And by the time I was kind of 14, 15, I was like fairly proficient in early versions of 3D, 3D Studio Max and um, software like that. And it felt like a way that you could, you could kind of be a director of sorts because you could control you know, these little mini scenes that you were making. And then when I got older and I moved to Canada, I realized that some of my favorite directors had kind of gone through similar paths and that directing was maybe an, an option. You know, maybe it was like if I, if I kind of stuck with it, maybe I could get to the point where I actually ended up being the person who was in control of all of the creative elements. So was it kind of James Cameron that made you and inspired you to be a director? Or was there someone else you'd seen on screen or behind the camera that made you want to physically pick it up yourself and have a go? Well, the film that I remember having the most effect on me as a single film where I was just, I, it, it made me want to understand all elements of filmmaking was Alien. Yeah. And, um, and Ridley Scott had also, um, not, not only had he come out of commercials, but he kind of created a really successful commercial company, which was RSA Films. And um, when, when I was kind of in my, my early 20s, it felt like the way to get into feature films would be to do commercials and, and music videos, which is what Ridley had done and what David Fincher had done. And it just, you know, so I, I would say I would say Alien and then getting into Blade Runner. Um, if I had to single out one person, it would probably be Ridley. It's not a bad blueprint, is it, really, to go off those two iconic films that are still just as good now, even though they were made in the 80s? Yeah, totally. And Cameron, Cameron would be up there as well. And then as I got older, uh, these, these other directors that I didn't know about before um, started you know, becoming really influential, like the obvious ones like Kubrick and you know, so on. With District 9, obviously, as one of your main debuts, it, I still think right now it's probably one of the best sci-fi films in the last 20 years. Did you expect the reaction you got from it? I mean, when anyone like Kevin Smith made Clerks, they never expected it to go past film festivals. And then to see it so iconic, like Tarantino's debuts, yours is pretty damn good to know that you produced District 9 to leave your mark on the industry. Yeah, I certainly had absolutely no idea. You know, it, it was... I, I think that I... You know, any film that I worked on now would be my fourth um, theatrical film, I suppose. And... I think that now, with a fourth film, I still wouldn't know. But the difference with District 9 was that it was not my fourth film. So I had not only not knowing what the audience would make of it, but the entire experience was like a first-time thing. So I remember very clearly being on set when we were shooting, and you know I was standing in this impoverished area of southern Johannesburg inside Soweto, where we had taken over all of these shacks from these these it was a weird mirroring of reality where the the government 
was forcibly moving all of these people out of the shacks that they had built into government-subsidized housing in a different part of Johannesburg. So they were kind of being moved the same way that the aliens in the film were being were being moved. And I remember standing there thinking, like, this is a film that I, that I know I would like as an audience member, but I have absolutely no idea how anybody else is going to feel about this. And, I mean, I was, like, consciously aware of that. And I, I, uh, I thought if I just kept making it for me, I was convinced that there would be a small number of people that had the same sensibilities that I had that I thought would like it. But beyond that, it was just completely unknowable. Was there a moment where you kind of panicked or did you always think, well, if I can make the film that I'm going to enjoy, that's all that matters at this point? Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as panic. Um, it was more, it, it's more like if you just keep reverting back to, uh, you know, making something that, that you feel creatively inspired to make. That's really all you can do because beyond that, what are you really doing? You know, Chappie was a really interesting lesson for me that way where the audience rejected it in a global sense. And it's like it, it, it brings into question so many interesting aspects of creativity where it's like, well, who are you making it for? And um, what is your goal with it? And how do you measure success? You know, super interesting cerebral concepts that come out of failure and maybe to a lesser extent out of success. So like many of the big bands in the world, when you listen to your favourite debut album from a band, you must think the pressure they have to try and follow it up, especially when it's gone global, something like, you know, The Strokes or someone. When you try and put that into movie terms, you released your debut, it went bigger than you could ever imagine. People put it as one of the most iconic sci-fi movies of all time. Surely the pressure must have felt then, how am I going to bring out my second album? How am I going to top that debut that I've left out? It must have been pretty scary. You know, it it wasn't, but um, I I really am a firm believer in the fact that if you if you lose sight of of something that you're trying to make because you believe in it for the right reasons, that you believe in it because it's something that you it it, it speaks to you in some way, it 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 means that you're sort of pandering or catering to some other force. If you're if you're looking for the same level of, of success or or fame or whatever the term is, so. I, I suppose I, this is where this is where it does bother me. Actually, is the only place that I can think where that stress becomes real is if 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 a, a creative endeavor is is rejected and financially doesn't make back what it costs to make. That can derail your ability to make the next creative piece that you want to make, and that's something I'm aware of. But I look at I look at the follow up to District Nine discussion more along the lines of if you just keep your head down and keep working on stuff that you love some of the stuff is not going to work and some of the stuff is going to work and you can't know all you can do is is make the best stuff that you can make and not bend it to what you think the audience is going to want and um so that that's still my philosophy it's just like go back to the basics and try to do it for the right reasons. And a big part of that is uh, is also like learning as a filmmaker, you know, and just trying to become better as a filmmaker. So what are the elements that you want to explore more or get better at? And um, that kind of growth can also, you know, that can be really fulfilling internally, but you can never know what its outcome is. So I just I just think you have to keep your head down and just work on stuff that you love. 
So you just mentioned then Chappie. Um, obviously, it didn't do as well as what people had expected. I still think it's a great film. You know, it's got some really good moments. And I think it's as a whole film, I, I still enjoy it. And I, I enjoy revisiting it. How did it feel being on the receiving end when it did get so kind of panned and people just didn't go and see it for some reason? Well, I, I think I understand why they didn't go and see it. It actually, I mean, if you if you break it down in terms of uh, uh, a global audience looking for archetypal um, understandable, familiar entertainment. I, it's very understandable why it didn't work. And, and kind of actually secretly part of that is why I love that the film exists because it's so bizarre and sort of, um, weird that it can't exist without me having made it. And I think one of the worst things that could happen is if you're the director of something that is so, um, corporate and watered down that you could have been replaced and it's not really even clear whether you directed it or not uh that really you know stresses me out from an artistic standpoint so i love the fact that the film exists and i really actually love the film but i can absolutely understand from a studio or financier perspective like why the film didn't work makes complete sense to me in in retrospect um when i was making it i felt like I felt it's very actually it's very similar to how I see the world actually, which is that there is this complete uh, random chaotic insanity that is life, and along with it comes these these miracles and this amazing uh, you know positivity of what consciousness and sentience is and the experience of of experience the notion of qualia, and that all of that is mixed with this um, this ability for you to get run over by a truck at any second or die of cancer. So there's this like farcical joke-like insanity to what life is. No one can really wrap their arms around really why we're here or what this means. And the way that I think I see it is, I wouldn't, I don't think comedy is the right word, but it is almost like a, some sort of Shakespearean tragedy comedy where it's so ridiculous that you have to kind of mock it or make fun of it. And that's what the film on a greater level was meant to be doing. Um, and I, I knew that that's what I was striving for when I was, when I was making it, but I thought that would come through more clearly and it, it kind of didn't. So, uh, you know, and then you can break down why it didn't and what the elements are that helped that not work. And all of those elements make sense to me. I get, I get why it didn't. But I'm still really happy that I tried to do that and that the film exists. You obviously learn from this. And like you said, you get your head back down and you do what you want to do. Now, this brings me to my favourite thing right now, Oats. There is nothing better out there than looking forward to the new instalment. And my God, you've you've bounced back better than ever. I mean, all I want to know at the moment is how did this come about? I mean, it's such an original idea. Did it all fall into place? Where did it start for you to even get your head around this? Uh, well, it still kind of hasn't fallen into place because um, it's such a strange economic model. Uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Like, But I think it, it came from a number of different places. Um but the main place that it came from was just wanting to be as creative and unrestrained as possible. And I, I think that if, if we were to do future volumes of Oates shorts, I'm pretty confident that they would get more and more extreme. 
and test the boundaries more and more where you could almost look at the stuff we've done so far as being kind of placid in a way. Yeah. But, but what I'm, what I'm getting at when I say unrestrained, I don't actually mean in an artistic sense. I mean, um, I mean that I think some directors in Hollywood are designed to work inside the system of Hollywood. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're naturally comfortable in the setup that Hollywood provides and they do their best work in that setup. And then there's some that are sort of in the middle. And then I would put me on the edge of that where I think that I work best when I can just do what I want. And, and also, um, try to be try to make decisions that I feel are in the best interest of what I'm going for creatively without alienating the audience, but letting me make those decisions instead of some other factor making those decisions. So I know that I basically to some degree act a little bit like an outsider to Hollywood and that I wanted to be in control of the process. And that, that thought process is what led me down the road of trying to make this weird studio that made testy, experimental kind of stuff. Like an example would actually be Chappie. Chappie would be a perfect 20-minute um, Oats piece that you could feel out and see how the audience like felt. You know? Um, yeah. I, know, I know I like it. Like, how does the audience feel? And so it's really, it's really good for that sort, of, um, that sort of thing. But the main goal, really, was just to be in a place that was creative and that had um, as many of the departments that we could fit under one roof as we could. So... You know, the production designer building the sets could be speaking directly to the VFX guys that could be speaking to wardrobe. And um, our awesome producer that we have in here, Stephen Sinono, is like real-time budgeting stuff and, and uh, everything is cohesive and sort of one creative entity. And, you know, the, and we actually did do that. We managed to pull off this weird small company that could, that could execute pretty good-looking stuff. And now it just becomes a case of like, well, what do you do with it economically so it can stay around? Because I know I really like doing these pieces and I would love to do a full feature inside the way that we've done it inside Oats. So I just need to solve exactly what that is. My basic thinking, though, is the model is quite sound, I think, which is that if, if, um, if we were to do volume two, so now, say you've got eight pretty big pieces, you know, in the twenty-minute zone that very clearly set up worlds. And say there's like one standout piece that I feel really positive about creatively, but the audience also um, seems to like it. Because obviously, if there's a piece that I love but the audience rejects it, that would not be wise, assuming that I love both pieces equally. Yeah. So to take that and then turn that into a feature, as long as the money comes from within our company. You know, or it's financed from within, meaning the feature is made no differently to the short films. They're left alone. They're up to us to make sure the audience understands where they are in the film. We try to get the script as good as we can. We try to get all of the elements to work as well as they can work. And then we make a full feature film, and then we release that traditionally. Because we owned it to begin with, the amount of proceeds that we get from it are you know, greater than you would normally get as a director. And it can then fund more volumes to test more ideas that you can then make another film out of. And that, so it, essentially, YouTube or Steam Oats would be free forever 
and we would I, we would just be accumulating these ideas that that we're making, and we're picking one out of ten or one out of twenty that get made into into more of a theatrical experience that that can then pay for the party to continue. Man, you're juicing us all up already, just teasing, and it's it's to know that I might get a hour and a half version of Racker or something is just mind-blowing already so it's it feels like if you're creating this model that can be successful it's it's fascinating what you're doing yeah i hope i I really hope it can just comes down to money and it's like i just want to make sure that if we if we get financed that we do it in a way that nothing changes and uh usually there's a lot of strings that are attached with taking money from anywhere really so it just it takes a little bit of thought to try to get the whole thing to work but i'm really i'm really uh sort of stuck on the idea of the experimental short pieces being free. I think it would be easier for us if we just decided to like charge for them or something, but I don't, I don't want to, I want them to be free. And that's part of the Rubik's cube that has to be solved. So how long was actually this in the pipeline before you announced it? It must've been a a while. Yeah, it was about, um, about two years. Yeah. So, uh, when after Chappie came out, we started building everything here and, um, so, you know, mid-2015 to putting out work in mid-2017. mid It's it's a really interesting way to go because you started with kind of commercials and short films and it's interesting for a director like yourself to now go back into the roots and kind of recreate these shorts film on a, a lower budget and also have full control instead of the, the, like you said, the Hollywood way of the studio having such control. You can literally do what you want. Yeah, exactly. I mean... You know, again, it's it's such an interesting um, topic because the the way that the way that directors interact with Hollywood, I find really fascinating, and like the different versions of how how those relationships work, and also what the kind of artwork is that's made at the end of that process in in all of its different forms is a really interesting thing to me. And I just I just feel like that for me personally, this setup is the most creative setup where. The, the thing that I find um, really fascinated by is that it's up to me to learn and get better and strive to make better films and, and um, you know, modify and adapt and learn based on what, based directly on me and what I feel the audience is getting, as opposed to politically dancing around how you know, you're adding an element with like, um, like a political element that that happens with big uh, Hollywood films. That is just a third element that I don't think you need. I think you need the filmmaker and the audience. And if you can listen and understand to combine what you're going for and what you feel internally, but measure that up against whether they're hearing what you're saying. You know, because that's really what the question is. Like, if they're not getting what you're saying, you're doing something wrong. Um, but if you're pandering or catering to them because you're trying to make it be what they want, that's also wrong. So you have to ride this very, very delicate knife edge. I think at the moment for any filmmaker out there, even the big film directors, the big well-known established filmmakers, it's getting trickier and trickier because studios are becoming more and more cautious about what they greenlit. Mm. It's it's a scary world that you have to go and buy a Blu-ray now of the director's cut to see the version that they really wanted to put out. I think it's a, a sickening world where I have to wait for the Blu-ray release to see what they really wanted us to see. I've just I can't get my head around why I can't go to the cinema and see what the director wanted us to see and put his name to. It's it's baffles me. 
Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is interesting. I mean, the, the, there are some directors that do it so well, though. Like, I'm a really huge fan of Chris Nolan in today's contemporary cinema. He's doing. He's doing amazing work with Warner Brothers, and like the results are incredible. But it's. It is predicated off of the success of, you know, like he got it right with The Dark Knight so well that he set up a situation where he can he can do whatever he wants at high budget levels. So there's there there are examples of where it like really works. I still James Cameron is like a majorly, you know, it's like a huge huge uh, influence on me and I love him as a director and he's the same. So, but I do think that younger directors that are coming into the machinery now um, if you're not coming off a billion dollar film like The Dark Knight, you know, you're you're facing a, a very like a really corporate situation. And so you have to decide what budget level you're in and like how the whole thing is going to work. And I just I just to some degree, I just want to uh, not think about any of that. I just want to be as, you know, free and creative. And I really am interested in the challenge, like I was saying about just trying to become a better filmmaker and I just I, I I'm I'm inspired by that idea, but I need to do it on my own terms. So we'll see where it all goes. You've talked about this all taking place under one roof. Um, does that include all the visual effects and all the last aspects for that? Because some of it is fascinating, and I think is this all taking place in one big studio? Yeah, exactly. Um, the the VFX component is the single biggest um, element under the roof here by quite a long stretch. But I mean, obviously, if you think of if you think of production, you know, like these these uh, films, if you take something like Zygote or you take something like Firebase, they're no different to feature films in that they're big enough that, that the 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 um, ratios of spe- of expenditure are kind of very similar to features. So if you imagine, say, fifty or sixty percent of your budget going straight into production, actual production, um, then maybe. A half of that is going to go to crew members that are there on the day, like your your A camera operator and your B camera operator and like your SFX crew and everything else. But those guys aren't in the building. So for permanent people that are in the building, um, the internal Oats VFX crew is the biggest single thing that, you know, was the goal was that it would just be here permanently. And unless I can figure out the economics, it won't be. But um if we can, they would be the biggest element that would just stay. And, you know, they're next door to me now working on um, a piece that we'll put out in about October. So, uh, yeah, they're all in here. And that's that's a hand-selected kind of elite team of fewer people than you would expect that are just all incredibly good at each element of visual effects that they do, headed up by an awesome VFX supervisor. So how do you find these people? Do you have scouts going out there? Do you have people that you've worked with previously? I mean, you must have, you know, it sounds like you're picking this dream team to come and work for you in this studio. It must be an honour if you're suddenly ringing up saying, do you want to come and work in a studio and get to do what you love all day? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, a lot, you know, Chris Harvey is the VFX supervisor, and I think um, a massive portion of that really is just him. So, like, there's artists that I have met inside of oats that i that i you know i've grown to really just uh, they're like these amazing artists that i now want to have working here forever if i can but i didn't know them before we built oats where i did know chris and chris chris would be like we should get this guy to do this we should get this person to do this and um 
And you also kind of want, it's not only artistic talent, it's also the right personality type that wants to do something that's slightly different from what the, the usual thing is. Um, and, and, you know, maybe be a little bit more okay with, with risk <laughs> because we don't really know where we're going. You were just talking then about the design, and for me, Raka is very different to anything that you've done before. Um, tell me a little bit more about this design, because it, it really is astonishing to kind of give to the world as your, your introduction to Oats. Yeah, well, the idea there was um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to make something that felt very harrowing and very bleak, and, uh, and, and that felt different to some of the stuff that I had done before. And I, I definitely, I think with this first batch of Oats stuff, I'm very much in the science fiction horror kind of camp right now. A lot of it is, is sort of sci-fi horror. And I definitely hadn't done that before. I had done elements of that, but nothing nothing like Raka. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to have this creature that was intimidating and kind of in a certain sense like an archetypal vision of what an alien would be. Um, I think that if you really spoke to astrobiologists or you seriously got into what what aliens might look like, it, they probably would not be anthropomorphic, and they would be, you know, they could be very different in a, in a host of different ways. They could be like clouds of helium or um, swarms of self-aware, like hive mind insects. So when you kind of genreify it and you make it a little bit more like an archetypal thing. I thought that this reptilian kind of, you know, alligator kind of creature would be an interesting way to go. And when we decided that, then it just became a case of starting to go down the road of like, what elements should we incorporate into it to give that aesthetic? And the the two things that I think I was the most um, adamant about was the one was like a cobra kind of cowl along its neck, yeah, kind of bristle. And the other one is my favorite animal of like all time is a snapping turtle. Like I'm obsessed with, with snapping turtles. <laughs> and um, there's two kinds. The smaller one, which is called the common snapper, is like my favorite animal ever. And if you look at that, they're super aggressive, but uh, they have like a really interesting jaw and jaw structure. And um, if you look at the jaw structure of the creatures in Raka, it's actually kind of similar to to a snapping turtle. So I wanted the snapping turtle jaw and this like cobra cowl. And then um, it was a mixture of us just playing with uh, some of the sculptors um, at Amalgamated Dynamics that were doing it like out of clay. And Ian Spriggs, who is the main digital organic modeler inside Oats, who took the initial sculpt and then ran with it digitally and just made this like unbelievable creature. You know that after this interview, I'm going to be on YouTube now looking at these animals and comparing them and seeing them in action and looking on Google, just loads of pictures of this animal. Well, feeding, uh, the videos of feeding snapping turtles is like one of the most harrowing things you'll ever see. It's like 50 times worse than racket. Right, okay. I won't be doing it too late at night. I'm going to be having some messed up nightmares. Yeah, yeah, wow. no good. But are you um, at this moment in time now focused entirely on Oats or have you got any other projects in the background or developing any other films or is it just purely getting your head down and doing more and more for the Oats studio? 
Well, with oats, I uh, we're almost at the point where like I have to figure out some economic way of making it work um, because we you know everything we put out is just free. So I wish that I could just do volume two, but it's going to take some thinking before that happens. So what I'm kind of focusing on at the moment is I have this I have this film uh, that I really hope gets made that is outside of oats. It's with uh, it's with 20th Century Fox. And it was it was a book that was given to me by by Fox when Alien ceased to exist. Um, Is this the Gone World? Of, yeah, it's Gone yes, World. It's one of the yes. best things like I've ever come across in my life. Like it's just for me personally, it's just the coolest, most amazing story and book. You know, despite despite the whole. Uh, stepping outside of Hollywood and just trying to work on stuff inside of Oats. This is pretty much the only project I can think of right now that, um, you know, at this kind of $100 million budget level, that it, it is just so cool that I, I would love to see this get made. So I'm spending a lot of time on that. And then I, at the same time, I'm working on um, feature ideas of uh, for films inside of Oats at lower budget levels than, than Gone World. Um, and that's really what I'm doing right now. Volume two is written. Like all of these kind of insane ideas that we have are good to go. It's just a question of, of how to pay for them. So, uh, you know, and, and not only are they written, many of them are actually designed and um, like in place. And there's a whole bunch that I would love to see get made. I just need to figure out how to do it. So I'm sort of doing all three of those things at the same time. A lot of my good friends always say to me, we all talk about them when they've been on YouTube, is that we want to physically own them on Blu-ray, we want them in their HD, we want the actual physical disc to play um, and watch them yep. in their entirety. Is that something we could look for in the future? Because I think that would be something that could really benefit. That is that is happening. Um, we're, we are in the process of, of getting uh, Oats Volume 1 D, uh, Blu-rays printed, so yes. That's made my day already, which is really good. Yeah, I know it's cool. I love the idea of something physical like that. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not. Of, I don't want know. to download stuff. I want to physically own it and have steel books, and yeah. I'm still that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Uh, I'm guessing from the projects you've worked on, and you know, I've read a lot about you before, and your love for Kojima, and your background in 3D animation. Um, have you got a strong relationship with gaming still, or do you not find the time? Because it seems like something that I can imagine you having such a passion for. You mean like just making a full-on game? Yeah, a bit of both. Do you get much time to play it, but at the same time, is there is there that thought of, I want to make a game now? I want to be behind a team to produce a video game for the people out there, the one that I would like to play? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think, um, I think that I, I'm so driven by, at the moment at least, by, by the idea of, of story and character and trying to become a better storyteller that... I really just want to make films. Um, I think that I, I love games, and I, I feel like I could very easily go down a rabbit hole of, of what video games are and what it means to make them. I think that my primary driving thing, despite how much I love games, is I just want to I just want to direct more. Yeah. So I think I would probably put the time into into a film. But you know, there, there's there's like some of the stuff that we, we do. I think. Um, is so close to games and aesthetic that I'm kind of hoping someone, I mean, we've been approached actually by a few different people 
where they want to turn some of the old stuff that we've already put out into games. And um, that sort of thing, you know, is very interesting. And because all of the the assets are available and, like, we can hand them over, as well as anything else that the, the potential party who wants to make a game would want, like concept art or other scripts that weren't released or, you know, greater world building, um, I, I would love to see all of that happen. But I think for me personally, it's like I just want to get better at filmmaking. Maybe when you retire in uh, 30 years, you might sit down and go, right, I'm ready to make a, a virtual reality game, but right now you've got too much hunger and desire to yeah. want to carry on doing what you're best at, which is making films. It, it sort of feels that way. Um, but, you know, every once in a while you see a game that's just kind of really inspiring. And Like, I love the idea right now of uh, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, where yeah. the, the concept of, like, Battle Royale is just so cool. In, in a game setting, in a virtual space that you occupy with other people, um, so I'm definitely, I'm definitely drawn to it. Just not yet. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts at the moment on kind of the current state of science fiction as a genre? Because we're in a world right now where we're getting a brand new Star Wars film every year. Um, it's months now until we see a brand new Blade Runner, um, which is just it still blows my mind. Do you think it's at its best, or do you think it still needs to mature more? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, the fact that Danny Villeneuve is doing a Blade Run is awesome. Um, you know, Alex Garland, uh, with Annihilation, like there, there's a lot of films that I think, I think where, where it can mature and this is a function of needing to make a lot of money back for whoever put the initial money in is, I think that, um, you don't find the same level of of exploration or depth or uh, experimentation as there could be. And, you know, it, there, there's, a, there's a necessity to kind of default to previously familiar tropes in order for films to not be rejected. And that, when you look at novels, they, they don't behave in the same way. So I think it would, you know, be unrestricted because of finances, it's really interesting what could happen in science fiction or in any genre, really just the way that you, the way that you deconstruct a story and, and how deep it, you know, in the realm of science fiction, how crazy and deep and wild the ideas can be in a, in a theatrical sense, I'm just as guilty as everybody else because there's a need, you know, for, for this recoupment of cost, But that's part of the reason to, to, to create oats is like hopefully in future we really do start pushing the boundaries of what that is a bit more. So I am aware of of like well in the third act this is kind of expected to happen and you know there's a whole bunch of stuff. You can take that as far as you want to take it. Like well why is the film always two hours? Why is everything always two hours? Why isn't it a seven hour experience? Or in the case of oats, why isn't it a seventeen minute experience? You know, like so it's sort of like expanding the way that you look at what is essentially an experience that like a human being is going to sit down and, and experience. How do you quantify that? And can it be modified to be different and have more of an effect on you? Um, but there are so many economic factors at play that it, 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 you, start to, you start to homogenize the product. Wow, it's, it is fascinating. I mean, one of the things that caught my attention so much with Oates, um, one of my favourite films of all time is John Carpenter's The Thing. I think the way that they use the practical effects, even though it's a 1982 film, looks better than the CGI films that are 10 years old. 
Can you talk to me about the pros and the cons for you between the practical and CG effects with Oats? Because I love both, but you seem to use them how they should be used. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the thing was Rob Bottin. I don't know if you know him, but he's like one of my favorite guys that worked in uh, practical effects ever. And I think when he did the thing, I think that may have been his first film, and he was incredibly young. Uh, when he did it and there's stories of John Carpenter having to drive him to like local hospitals to get to get like you know uh, dehydration uh, IV packs and stuff because he was just working himself to death um, so he also did Robocop as well he did he did the suit that Peter Weller wears um, so I love Rob Bottin and I, I love the stuff that he did in the thing and obviously, they didn't have computer graphics that they could really rely on then. Uh, but I think that back in the day, the thing that made that kind of effects work, um, Alien are really good examples of that too, are when the filmmaker knows what not to show. And mm-hmm. instead of like just continuously showing you everything and like giving away the gag, uh, being really judicious about what is on screen and what isn't is the key to success, assuming that the props are built really well. So the thing, you know, I think Carpenter was really thinking about how to portray those elements in a way that was that was most effective. And I think for me now, and, you know, for Chris, who's the effects supervisor here, um, it's just a case of, like, all of these things are just tools, and the tools, some of the tools are better than other tools. So... If if this has pros and cons in this department and this has pros and cons in this area, just pick all of the pros and discard all of the cons and kind of it, – it will sort of start to self-illuminate which elements should be used where and how. There is definitely currently in Hollywood a default to just default to computer graphics because it's easier and a lot of the problem solving has been removed. So the, the higher the budget is, the more it's like, well, we'll just do it in CG. And when there's no question that when they did the thing, I'd say like 80% of the decisions that were made when they were doing it would have been problem-solving decisions where there was very little to go on uh, in terms of pre-established ways of doing things. And now the industry is so mature that all of the decisions have kind of been removed um, and you know there is no more room for unknowns. It's just a case of executing uh, a, a way, you know, this this procedural way of doing it, but in actual fact, you there are still different ways to do it that could be better for the audience. It could be a better experience for the audience, but you have to think about what you're doing, not just default. So something along those lines, I think. The most recent Star Wars episode seven, I got to see a mix, and I think JJ got the balance right. We got to see the set design, we got to see real puppets again. It was quite refreshing, and it just kind of made me realise why I love film so much. And sometimes just take longer on it, don't rush it, because it has a a feeling of just I don't know. It's just right. That's why stuff like Gremlins is one of my favourite films. They didn't just you know we had puppets. It was it just it's timeless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's true. And I, I think, you know, like the JJ example with with Star Wars is is a good example in the sense that I think I think things are getting better. Like there's kind of a maturity that's that's arriving now where you, you go through these sine waves of new new technology. Um 
And I still think it's like we're leaning more on the not thinking and just defaulting the CG side. But I think it's getting better. Like people are, are starting to think about putting a little bit more into practical than they were before if, it, if, it, if it's right for what the, the required outcome is. Um, so you do see that in a, in a couple of bigger films now. There's obviously still tons where you're like, why the hell would you do it that way? But, you know, that's life in the big city. You've talked obviously about this model. Um, it's a lot like Netflix, Amazon, where they produce series now, and you know it's not on a full big budget like a movie. Um, they do their own projects. We've got great stuff like Stranger Things TV being brought to us. Your idea of releasing your films uh, and files to Steam and YouTube, you are venturing into a model that no other filmmaker has done on their own back. What is the most kind of interesting consequence that you've found from this approach so far? Because you're still learning, you're saying it now that there's still decisions to be made on how we can get to part two, but what's the most sort of lesson that you've learned from it so far that's kind of really opened your eyes? Well, I I think that the biggest lesson that I've learned is how to um, separate the noise of Hollywood from what what I want or what the, what I think the audience wants. And I didn't, you know, if, if you look at things like, um, the Hollywood reporter, uh, there's this feeling of like this, this, this fishbowl kind of mentality inside of Hollywood where it's so insular and everything just spins around and around. And there's, there's no real, um, branching out outside of that, uh, that you, you start to look at things through a skewed lens and I think being out in the wilderness trying to figure out how to make this weird studio work has given me a different perspective that I think I didn't have before. And I, I, have, I view Hollywood now as more of an insular thing than I did before. That's probably the biggest learning curve outside of anything creative. So the people that are listening to this interview right now on the podcast, what can they do to ensure that we keep getting more and more oats and that you will be delivering this amazing content what can they actually do to support? Uh, nothing yet, <laughs> because I haven't I haven't really created the venue for where uh, that help or support could be given. So um, I would I would say save any dollars that you have uh, until I give you a product that is actually um, designed to be purchased, and then that can that can potentially pay for more volumes of of weird short films. And in an ideal world, where would you like to see this project in, say, two years' time? I, I have a really clear end goal in my mind. Like, there's, there's, it's very clear to me. It's like, it's that we've accumulated enough capital that our own bank account can support making films that are, like, at least as big as District 9. And by making those films and receiving the proceeds that the audience pays us for the films we're able to then put out more creative weird volumes that we can learn more about which films to make so um a single studio with all of the artists under one roof and production under one roof um that makes stuff on a theatrical level as well as a youtube experimental level forever is my is my goal and where i i the only the only measuring stick for me is how the audience responds to things mixed with how I feel about the pieces that I've made, not the influence of fear about whether profit is going to be made or not. 
at this moment in time, even though we're very early into it, have you looked at any of the reactions? How are you measuring the kind of reactions that you've got so far? Have you got a system in place, or are you looking at any of the reviews, or are you just keeping your head down and keeping going at the moment? No, we're, I'm definitely looking at stuff. I mean, anywhere that people can give me input, I will look at it, because I want to know what works and what doesn't work. And it's like I was saying earlier about knowing how I feel about a piece mixing it with how the audience appears to feel about it and then and then making a call on whether it's it's worth making more of that or not i mean i think i have pieces that i want to make that i feel like the audience may not like but i just really, I, I want to make them and i feel like it's it's kind of like how i felt about district nine where i think some people will probably like them but i know that most people won't um but in terms of actually knowing uh exactly how people think you have to kind of take a mixture of whether it's people that are participating on our Oat Studios forum, where they're more like actively saying stuff to us, um, people contacting me on Twitter. Twitter is helpful. And reading comments anywhere, reading any reviews people have done. I mean, I will do that with Oats much more than I would do it with a theatrical film. Because as, you know, assuming that we have the capital to keep going forward, we are then the stewards of like where we end up. So it's in my interest to know to know exactly how I feel and how the audience feels because that's gonna that's gonna make or break our ability to to, to stay doing this. So I do want to know and I do look. My dream is that I go on to watch a film one night and I'm looking and I'm like, should I look on Amazon? Should I look on Netflix? Or should I look on Oats? And it's a whole <laughs> it's a whole like network where I can choose and I don't know. Maybe you get an Oscar for one of the films you put out or some awards that you know it's literally a network full of new filmmakers that you've also brought on as well and you're just creating these pieces of work that wouldn't normally see the the light and day that's the dream yeah i mean that's definitely like that, that that's it's a it's a uh, it's a small bullseye but it's a super cool goal right now i'm just trying to like keep the lights on <laughs> yeah bit by bit yeah I would be shot by a lot of my friends if I didn't ask this question and I need to know from yourself, is there any hope in the world that we're going to get to see you work on an Aliens film or is it completely dead and buried? I really I really think it's dead, unfortunately. I mean, you know, I, I always feel really bad talking about it because I, you know, I like Ridley so much and I really love Sigourney and I, I really wanted to make the film for myself as a fan the films and also because Sigourney specifically said that she felt like Ripley never had an ending that resonated with her so I I felt like I had a lot to give and it's turned into this kind of negative thing where there's no way to talk about it unless it seems negative you know so I kind of just stay away from it but I think I I am fairly confident in saying that it is a hundred percent dead I I just don't see any way it's ever going to happen did you yourself watch the latest Alien film, or have you not bothered? I haven't seen it yet. I want to. Um, I haven't seen it yet, though. That surprises me. I thought you'd be day one, you'd be in the cinema, you'd, you'd get your chance to see it and kind of see how it's panning out. No, it's on It's on purpose. I mean, it's. It's. Uh, I want to see it, but I just, you know, it's. It's. I just want to let the dust settle and stuff and, and then watch them. I think it feels like too much of like seeing an ex-girlfriend holding hands with someone you might know. I think it would be a bit too raw. I think it just needs to be a a bit of time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to just, just take a break for a while. And how was it again for you when you were making notes and you got the nod from Sigourney? Because 
you said to me on this start of this interview today, the inspiration, one of your favourite films of all time is Alien. And for me, she is Ripley. So when she comes on set mm. and meets with you, that must have just been a bit like, okay, I'm going to be directing Ripley. <laughs> Full respect yeah. to her, but it, it is Ripley. Yeah, she's she's awesome. I mean, she's one of my favourite people. She's just such a cool actress and, and person. And how she ended up in Raka was hilarious because it was it was Jasper, which is that character, was written uh, as a man, but also as a friend of mine who was going to play the part. And when Alien ceased to exist, she asked me what else I was working on. And I said I was building this weird studio. And um, we were like into production with it. And she was like, well, what kind of stuff is it? So I sent her a few scripts, and Racco was one of them, as examples of what we were making. Because, you know, it's like maybe in future you could be in one, or who knows. And Racco was the one that she instantly just sort of loved. Like, she she got back to me, and, and she was like, I, I love this. I want to play Jasper. And so it was so surprising to me that I had to go back to my friend, who is a fully-fledged actor. I mean, I'm, not, I'm making a sound like he isn't when I say he's my friend, but I was like, dude... Sigourney's now playing your role. <laughs> so you don't, unfortunately, you can't be Jasper. And then the really funny thing is, I thought that he would like just get it because it's Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. But he tried to talk me out of it, which was really. <laughs> what? Yeah, he tried to like give me reasons as to like why it was a bad move. And I was like, dude, this is not, you're not going to win this argument. No, you need to just stop because this is Sigourney Weaver. It's not like you're my friend, but you don't say no to certain people. And Sigourney wanting this yeah. part is just the biggest no-brainer of all. Yeah, 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 exactly. So what is it now then? Get your head back down, keep working, hopefully get some funding coming in. Just keep, I suppose, following you on Twitter and checking out the... Uh, updates on Facebook because I know a lot of the fans out there would support you, would get behind it. I don't know if it's a Kickstarter. I don't know if it's invest in the future. Yeah, but... I, feel, I feel like uh, crowdfunding is not the right way to go at the moment. I just want to... There, there, I mean, I have. I, there are ways for it. It's just the, the way that we finance it just has to be really exactly in the same vein that the company has been so far. So, uh, And then also I have the Gone World as well that you know, creatively, I just cannot turn away from because I love it so much. So I, I feel good creatively. I mean, stuff's good. I just just need to figure out the logistics of those. Is is that official with the Gone World? Well, I mean, it's just it's in it's in screenwriting right yeah. now. Yeah, you know, so it's 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 kind of early days, but the concept is is just so cool. I'm going to get the book after listening uh, to you today because it just seems that you have said it's one of the best things ever. So yeah. <laughs> I'm taking your word for it. The problem is it only comes out next year, though. It's in February that the book is on shelves. Yeah. I can wait that long. It's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And my final question for you, if you could, and this is a, a tricky one, but if you could have made or you're looking at getting involved in a film and you had free range to choose, what would you go for? Would you love to do a Star Wars spin-off? Would you love to do Episode Ten? Would you? What would be your dream right now? Oh, it's an interesting question. Well, I mean, Alien is obviously ruled out now. But I think that, that you know, the creative um, world of Halo has always been really intriguing to me. And um, so just on a personal kind of gut level, I would say out of IP that exists that's in the world, I would say probably Halo. And do you think that could ever happen? Because I've read a lot of interviews and a lot of stuff with you and a lot of people have always said, 
you are going to make Halo? Uh, I feel like it wouldn't. Um, I think that I, it, it, yeah, I don't know. It just feels it feels like it wouldn't. But but speaking just creatively, like the characters that are in there, um, the worlds that have been created. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of very compelling, interesting stuff more than you would think from from a game. But there's a lot of really cool stuff. And I think a lot of filmmakers and people that have experimented in the past will have listened to this podcast. What would you say to them? Do you think just follow your dream, do it, get your head down and work hard because you can make a name for yourself? Yeah, I think that people spend way too much time thinking about network or like, I mean, for, for me now, like I receive, uh, I, I constantly receive like scripts and ideas from people that I don't actually want people that I don't know where I never did that. Like I just tried to do my own stuff and put it out there. And most of the filmmakers that I really liked did the same thing. None of them were really politically motivated where it's about meeting this person or getting your foot in this door of this studio or whatever. It's like, you're going to get noticed by doing stuff. And if that means taking an iPhone and filming your own videos that you put on YouTube, then that's what it means. But you have to do it. You can't like just hypothetically talk about it. And so, yeah, I think there's too much emphasis on um, everything other than trying to make a miniature film and become a filmmaker. That's my approach. I, I started a podcast and thought, I'm going to go after the biggest names. I'm not going to take time and start researching and doing it. I just went out there and I'm here talking yeah. to you now. I've spoken to Anthony Hopkins. I spoke to Kevin Smith. I think just go for it because you can do it. You just got to stop the shit getting in the way. Yeah, exactly. It's it is that approach. So yeah, and get out there and film or make it happen with your own hands. Um, don't expect people to ever give you anything. I want to thank you for your time today. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. So there it is, the interview with me and Neil Blomkamp. Something I didn't think I would say, but it feels damn good saying it. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know it's easier to say this because it's the most recent and it's fresh, but for me that's the best interview that I've done. I had so much fun, it was a total blast, and Neil Blomkamp is the best guest I've spoken to. Such great, great conversations, so many good stories that he shared with me, and he just opened up and told me about everything. I couldn't have asked for a better guest, and I'm so, so grateful for Neil taking the time to talk to me. The best part is I've spoken to Neil since and we're going to do some more podcasts together. So in the near future we're going to follow it up and talk more and more things. Sci-fi, films, production, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So please stay tuned for that. In the meantime, please go over and check out the Oat Studios videos. You have to do this. They're on YouTube and they're free. Get on social media, let Neil know what you think and let me know. Get on Mark and me on Twitter, on Facebook, email me, do whatever, but I want to know your reaction because I was blown away and I'm confident that all the people out there that love District 9 and love his other work are going to absolutely love the stuff that he's creating in this studio. He's a game changer and it's just going to get bigger and bigger. Thank you all for taking the time to listen today. You can probably hear how excited I am for you guys to listen to this. It's been incredible. It's going to be a big, big ask of episode 21 to top this, but it's down to Tommy Wiseau to do it. If anyone can do it, it's going to be Tommy. 
So stay tuned for that. It's going to be out in a few weeks' time. And please check markandme.com out for all of my other episodes. There's many guests on there with many stories to tell. And please get on there and let me know what you think because your feedback is crucial and it makes all this so, so rewarding. I will speak to you all again soon and take care. Mm-hmm.